What is up, listeners of the world? My name is Jalen Tully, and welcome to J Talks. you guys and welcome back to yet another episode of J Talks. Thank you so much for tuning in today and I hope you are enjoying another fine Sunday. It's been just over a week since Joe Biden has sworn into office and become our commander-in-chief for the next four years and I do just want to do a quick rundown of what he's accomplished in his first week, how his first week has gone, and then I also want to touch on the impeachment trial before jumping in to some of the juicier parts of this week's episode. So first things first, to say the least, I am impressed. I love the urgency that Biden has with some of the executive orders that he's signed, some of the legislation that he signed. I'm really thrilled to see some of the changes that he's already made in terms of policy. I am also super thrilled to see the plans that he also still has, other executive orders that he's planning on signing, other legislation that he's hoping to introduce. But so far, we have become re-engaged in the World Health Organization. We have rejoined the Paris Climate Accord. The Muslim ban that Donald Trump put into place in 2017 which placed a travel restriction on prospective immigrants and asylum seekers coming from various countries in the Middle East and parts of Africa as well. That has been reversed. Masks are now mandated on federal property and several different types of public transportation. And a new immigration bill has been introduced that involves hopefully getting the 11 million undocumented immigrants here some form of citizenship or hopefully getting them on a path to receiving citizenship. And he has also reversed the transgender military ban that Donald Trump signed into place about two years ago. So far, I just would like to say that I am impressed. I am impressed with the steps that Joe Biden has taken so far in his first day. He didn't even sleep one night in the White House. And after the inauguration, he was signing executive orders and signing policy into place and making some of these reversals that he deemed important enough to not even wait until he was in office a full day, which I I love the urgency. And I hope that this is something that not just him, but all Democrats and all of his administration carries with them through the next four years. The only piece of legislation that he's signed into place so far that I don't necessarily think is bad policy, I don't necessarily think it's a bad piece of legislation, I just think that it needs to be followed up with a prompt and swift course of action in order to prevent people from getting pissed off, and that is the canceling of the Keystone pipeline. The only reason I think that might have not been the best decision was because Fox News reporters, Republicans, right-wing media outlets are really bitching about the job losses that that caused for a lot of people in those rural areas that would have depended on some of those jobs. So I don't necessarily disagree with the legislation. I I appreciate it 1000% in terms of the negative impact that a Keystone Pipeline would have had on our climate, but I think that he would need to follow that up with a very swift course of action in terms of finding clean energy alternative 
job opportunities that he could introduce to those rural areas in order to prevent people from getting too upset at him about that. But that's really the only issue with any of the policy that Joe Biden signed into place so far. I think otherwise, he's really done a great job of not just focusing on current issues today that need to be addressed as soon as possible, but also bringing up other issues from the past that he deemed as too important to wait, such as the Muslim ban, like the transgender military ban. And I appreciate that he finds those issues too important to wait, because not only do I think we will need to keep this energy up for re-election in 2024, but I also think we need to keep it up to get more Republicans and more of those individuals leaning more to the right on our side. Which, seeing how conservatives are handling Joe Biden's newfound presidency in the current circumstances, I think that is more important than ever to try and get Republicans more on board with Democrats at this point. Trying to decipher Fox News at any given time is borderline impossible. Trying to decipher Fox News now, it abs- it rots your brain. <laughs> Whenever I try, I can just feel my brain melting in my skull. It is so difficult to sit down and try and watch Fox News headlines. I mean, it's not like I go out of my way to watch Fox News, but when they scroll, when they show up on my timeline, I try and watch them because I know it's like important to understand the other side or whatever. But I do try and watch them, and <laughs> all I can think about was, do you guys remember in 2014? when Barack Obama wore a tan suit for a press conference and Fox News and conservatives lost their mind like it was the worst possible thing that he could have ever done as president. It was apparently unprofessional. He was way too underdressed for a press conference that important. It was a humongous deal. That was such a big deal because Fox News freaked out about something that really was not supposed to be a big deal. Except now, instead of doing it once in four years, they're doing it four times a day. Everything, every possible thing, it seems like they can nitpick and they can turn negative and they can make into a conspiracy theory or an argument or a reason as to why Joe Biden's unfit to be in office. They are taking it and they are running with it. At first, it was his Peloton. Oh, he has a Peloton bike and when it came out that there might have been security concerns if he wanted to bring it with him into the White House. And that was a big deal. Why does he need a Peloton bike? I bet he doesn't even use it. I bet he doesn't work out. Why does he use a Peloton bike and all this other stuff? And then it was his COVID relief plan is way too expensive, despite the fact that the CARES Act of last year was $2.2 trillion and Joe Biden's is $1.9 trillion and it does way more for the average citizen. But you know, what are facts? What is caring about the average American citizen? I wouldn't know. And the last thing that I can just think of off the top of my head is his Rolex. Fox News and conservatives are freaking out because Joe Biden has a Rolex and they're so expensive and he spends his money on frivolous things. As if these senators who receive millions of dollars from corporations every single year aren't out buying like private jets and half a million dollar yachts, but God forbid Joe Biden has a Rolex. And I know this will all die down. I know it won't be like this forever. I know people won't be targeting and prioritizing trying to make Joe Biden look bad for the all four years of his presidency. I know that won't happen. It's just, it's so disheartening when we are in a pandemic, we are experiencing a massive economic recession and an economic crisis, 
millions of Americans are struggling to survive financially in this country because of those two previous things. We are dealing with a racial reckoning. We're dealing with a ton of social issues as, as a society. And this is what Fox News and major conservatives and major news outlets choose to focus on is the watch that Joe Biden chooses to have on his wrist. Conservatives always choose to focus on the trivial thing when it comes to undermining and making their opponents look bad, but he's our president. His term started three minutes ago. He's going to be our president for the next four years. Get over it, please, and utilize your energy and channel it into something a little more productive and something that focuses a little more on helping people through the several disasters that we are experiencing as a human race right now. Maybe use your energies for something a little more positive, like convicting the former president in his upcoming Senate trial. That would be helpful. And I say that knowing it's most likely not going to happen, despite the fact that Democrats now hold a quote-unquote majority in the Senate. We would need 17 Republicans to abandon their party lines and vote to convict number 45. And I... Two weeks ago, I would have said, yeah, maybe that'll happen. Maybe we could actually convict this man. Maybe we could actually prevent him from running from office again and inflicting any more damage on our democracy than he already has. But as I'm looking at the situation now, I see that that most likely is not going to happen. I would like to peel back a few layers as to why that's happening. I would like someone to conduct a couple of investigations as to why so many of these GOP senators have rescinded their former statements and have rescinded their former opinions and redacted their former opinions on President Trump's involvement in the January 6th riots at the Capitol. And I would say I would like to see why, but I already know why. I know it's most likely because a lot of them are still looking to hold power and are still looking to regain their Senate seats when those do come up for re-election. And I know they're hoping to appeal to a lot of Trump's base, and that means not losing his supporters votes and that means not losing his support when it comes to re-elections in general and the other part of that is more likely than not there's a good to fair chance that number 45 is threatening a lot of these people's lives or threatening to sue these people or threatening or just overall inflicting threats or threatening to inflict harm on them their livelihoods or their families that is all too real of a reality, and as unfortunate as it is, we kind of have to know that if we're if we're gonna have any chance at combating it and learning to truly leave Donald Trump and every awful idea, every awful policy change, and every bigoted statement that he said in the past. I am happy, however, that Democrats are still pursuing with the same amount of urgency. I am happy that they are holding it now and they're not deciding to push it back after Joe Biden's first 100 days. The new trial is happening on February 8th, and I will be talking about that as it nears closer, but I am not going to put all my eggs in one basket and think that there is actually a fair chance that we're going to convict him because in, in reality, it, there's a very small chance that he's actually going to be convicted and we kind of just have to come to terms with that. But this is not the only way that we can overcome Donald Trump. This is not the only way that we can leave Donald Trump in the past. I think social media companies continuing their plan to de-platform him, continuing the bans that they have on his account and his content, I think that is absolutely genius. I didn't actually think it would work. I wish we had done this four years ago. I feel like this could have prevented so much, but it's really, truly insane to see how 
how helpful it was to deplatform him and to not give him all of these different outlets to reach his followers and incite the hateful, potentially dangerous lies that he was perpetuating for the last three months. That just goes to show that there are other ways to defeat him. And like I was saying last episode, we need to remember the role that we play in all of this. We need to remember to keep contacting our representatives, keep contacting your senators, keep calling, keep emailing, keep putting pressure on these people to impart change on not just our behalf, but the behalf of everyone else in this country and do what needs to be done to keep Donald Trump and any other future Donald Trumps out of public office. Before I get into the next segment and the rest of this episode, I wanted to bring up the star of the inauguration last week. I know you've seen them. You've probably partaken in their circulation on the internet. You've probably gotten a pretty big serotonin boost off of seeing them online. The Bernie memes. The memes of Bernie Sanders sitting at the inauguration with his legs crossed and his arms folded over his chest, all huddled up, trying to keep warm in the middle of January in Washington, D.C. with his thick woolly mittens. I know you all have seen them, and I know you all probably think they are as wholesome as I do. Bernie Sanders saw people (laughs) poking fun at him at his expense at the inauguration, He decided to put these pictures of him on a sweatshirt, sell them on his website, and raise $1.8 million for Meals on Wheels in Vermont. This man truly shows how dedicated he is to his public servitude each and every day, and I cannot get enough of it. Instead of getting angry, instead of becoming partial to people literally laughing at him and making a mockery out of him at his own expense, he found a way to capitalize on it. And he found a way to not only capitalize on it and make millions of dollars off of it, but he also found a way to give back to his community and support and uplift the people who have been voting for him and have supported him in his his own home state. That is genuinely wholesome. There's no, there's, I don't think there's any other way to put it. I don't think there's any other word that encompasses this act wholeheartedly other than wholesome. This is just so wholesome. And Bernie Sanders, if for some reason you ever are listening to this, I need you to hear how incredibly thankful I am to have you and other people like you serving us in Congress. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I'll probably say it a million times before I die. These are the people who should transcend bipartisanship and you should want in public office regardless of the opinions they hold or the party they affiliate with. You can call Bernie a socialist, you can call him a kooky old man, but at the end of the day, he still went above and beyond for the people in his community and he managed to not only put the effort in, but also put his pride aside to do something that helped probably hundreds of thousands of people especially now, especially in a pandemic when people are struggling to make ends meet, when people are struggling to find food sources and sources to be able to sustain themselves and keep them and their family alive, safe, and healthy. It just, it really tugs at my heartstrings. It makes me happy in a way that nothing else does to see someone like Bernie Sanders, to see someone holding public office do something like this, especially when I feel like we are just so used to seeing our public officials, to seeing our public servants, to seeing those who we elect into offices, 
not do stuff like this. I don't want the Harvard grad who got in on a legacy admission. I don't want someone who inherited their father's law firm and has never had to and has never known struggle a day in their life. I don't want someone who had a trust fund waiting for them the second they graduated high school. I want people who are not only connected with, not only care about and sympathize with, people who are of the working class, people who struggle from paycheck to paycheck to survive. I want people who not only are able to connect with and sympathize the vast majority of Americans, but I want people who are able to resonate with them. I want people who are able to say, I came from these positions. I know how you feel, not because I take the time to listen to you, but because I am you and I've been there and I've struggled and be able to say, I've had to depend on meals on wheels. I've had to depend on WIC or social security or Obamacare in order to survive and make sure that I can make it from day to day. Fact of the matter is, these are the people I want in office. These are the people that are that might not agree with you on the most fundamental of issues, might not agree with you on the policy that they want to pass, might not agree with you on the political party they identify with, but at the end of every single day, they are going to look at their actions from that day and say, what can I do to improve on who I am as a public official tomorrow? What can I do to make the lives of my people better tomorrow? And Bernie Sanders has always been and probably will be until he is done serving in office, one of those people. And I, I just needed to take the time to say that and to share the incredible thing that he took the courtesy of doing for the people of Vermont this past week. So Bernie Sanders, well done. You are always someone who I look up to and aspire to be not necessarily in terms of my career choice, not necessarily in terms of what I want to do in my life, but in terms of how I want to treat people, in terms of how I want to leave people feeling when I'm done associating with them. I think we should all turn to Bernie Sanders for inspiration on how to be better versions of ourselves each and every day, because this man is nailing it. I gave you some political stuff at the beginning of this episode. I just gave you a heartwarming story about an old man. And now I'm going to give you my very first lesson in anti-racism. This is probably going to be something that I really want to get into doing on this podcast, just doing little segments on what not just white people, but people of all other races, other people of color, and even other black people on what they can do to be better allies towards not just the black community and black liberation movements, but also to other movements and other goals when it comes to fighting for true equity in this country. By no means am I saying my words are law. By no means am I saying everyone has to listen to and take everything I say to heart. By no means am I saying I know more than anyone else. And by no means am I trying to make myself the next Angela Davis. I am simply just trying to use my platform, use the podcast that I have, the voice that I have to advocate and fight for better communities, not just for black people, not just for people of color, but for everyone, for all marginalized groups, for everyone who has to stare at the ugly face of oppression every single day in this country. The topic that I'm going to talk about today is much more for white people, much more for people who hold positions of privilege in society and are able to reach other groups who hold some of the ignorances that we see permeating into our communities in America. And People of color and black people can take these and bring them to other communities, bring them to other people in their lives and say, hey, I know 
you are very determined in your allyship. I know this is something that you're also very passionate about and you want to try and make this country a more inclusive place for black people. Here, try doing this. I think you could really reach a lot of people or try doing this. I think it could really make a difference. Or you could just cut out the middleman and tell them to listen to J Talks on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. But I do want to start getting into the actual lesson of anti-racism that I have for you guys today. That being, do not cut off your racist family members. I know that sounds really weird, just with no outside context, with no added information, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give it to you guys so you understand more of what I'm saying. I first want to say that I know this is not a one-size-fits-all tip. I know this is not something that is feasible for a lot of people, let's face it. Family can be very toxic, even if they're not racists, even if they don't support MAGA, even if they're not right-wing extremists or conspiracy theorists. Family can be toxic just in general, and I know asking people to stay in environments where they don't feel safe, where they don't feel welcomed, where they're not appreciated is asking a lot. This more so is targeted towards the people who otherwise have very good relationships with their family, otherwise appreciate and are loved by their family very much, but their family might just hold differing political views or might just hold some views that are solidified in ideals of racism or white supremacy. It's very clear in the past year that the rift between politics, that the rift between what people consider right and what people consider wrong has become absolutely cavernous. It's always been there. There's always been a disconnect between the right and the left. There's always been a, been a disconnect between black and white society. There's always been these disconnects and there's always been rifts between those groups. But this year, especially not just with the election and the false claims made about the election and the lead up to the election, but combine that with the mishandling of the pandemic and the prospects of getting over this pandemic and with the cherry on top, the racial injustice and the racial discrepancies that truly came to light in this country. And I feel like, unfortunately or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, that pushed people into subscribing to two very extreme and very different groups, particularly the white community and white people. I feel like one group of white people felt as though they had a civic duty. Their white guilt was absolutely overpowering them this summer, and they felt like they had no other choice but to be very vigorous advocates for Black Lives Matter and support these Black liberation groups and these Black liberation organizations very adamantly. While on the other extreme end of things, the other group of white people just further identified with right-wing extremist groups, white-wing conspiracy theories, Back the Blue, Blue Lives Matter, then Blue Line, and that just kind of pushed the other group of white people further into their their little hole of conservatism and MAGA and right-wing politics. The outcome of that, unfortunately, was I think a lot of specifically young white people seeing this problem, seeing all of these issues, seeing this amount of discourse, and saying, I want to do something to help, but I don't know what. And I think a large part of that is also people not taking the time to actually incorporate themselves into the Black Lives Matter movement and taking the time to read resources and put effort into bettering yourself. I feel like that was also the big issue this summer. And I promise I'm going to get into what I actually want to talk about. I really, truly promise. This is something I have to say really quick. If you are at all in doubts about what you can do to make your voice better heard, what you can do to be a better ally, 
you need to take the time to sit down and listen to black people. And I'm not saying you like go up to a random black person on the street you've never met before and ask them what you can do to be a better anti-racist and what you can do to be a better ally because that's creepy and unwarranted. Nobody wants to deal with that. But if you do have people in your life, family members, friends, acquaintances, people that you work with, people that you associate with on a daily basis, taking the time to sit down with them and truly say, I want to put in the effort to make this world more comfortable and safe for not just you, but everyone else who deals with what you deal with on a daily basis. Just taking the time to listen to someone who subscribes to these marginalized groups and deals with this oppression on a daily basis not only makes their voice feel so much more heard, but it also gives you a direct insight into what Black people actually need from you and what Black people actually want people with privilege and want white people to do in their own communities around other white people with the purpose of cutting back on some of the microaggressions and some of the nuances that black people deal with every single day. So that's the first thing. But getting back more into what I actually wanted to talk about because I cannot stay on topic for the life of me today, cutting off racist family members. I feel as though that was something that really gained traction this summer and that was something that was quote-unquote, an online trend. It was not only very acceptable, but also very rewarded and supported for people to curse out or cut off their racist family members. Now that I've really had time to sit with some of the events from this summer and look at not just what was helpful to the organization and the movements that transpired this summer, but also I can sit back and see what wasn't helpful and what probably did more damage than people intended or that people could even have predicted. And I do think that people, specifically white people, white teenagers, cutting off their racist family members or cutting off their family members who are ignorant or subscribe to a different political party, I honestly, I don't think that helped at all. And if anything, it probably only did more damage than it probably would have done if you would have stayed in that family ship, if you had stayed in that relationship with them and utilized your voice to try and turn them in a different in a bit of a different political view. I feel like when people do something such as cut off their family members, they think they're being a much better ally than they actually are, but the reality of that is that your parents are still going to be racist if you don't answer their texts. Your brother is still going to repost QAnon shit on Facebook if you unfriend him. Your cousin is still going to support Trump if you uninvite him from Thanksgiving. You're you are not actually putting any effort into changing these people's views. If anything, you're just further showing them that there can be no political cooperation with people who are from the left, with people who are liberals, because they'll never put the effort into understanding why we believe what they believe. They'll never, they just cut us off. They just believe we're bad people. You are just solidi further solidifying those ideas in these people's head. And like I said earlier, if anything, that's only making the problem worse. I am going to take the time to admit something and say something that I feel like a lot of white people don't want to admit because it's very uncomfortable to think about, but white people have locker room talk about black people the same way that men have locker room talk about women. No man is going to sit in a room surrounded by a bunch of other men, especially if they're young or teenagers or in their 20s. They're not going to sit in a room and talk about women the same way and in the same type of dialect that they're going to talk about women if there is a woman in the room or if they're in a classroom with women, or if they're at a bar with women, or if they're trying to talk to women. And unfortunately, that also exists for white people. White people don't use the same sensitive language. White people do not talk with the same appreciation in the same uplifting manner about black people. 
when they're just around white people than when they are about black people. And unfortunately, that's just a, that's just a fact. And if you have someone who is occupying that white space and filling it with white nationalist rhetoric, if you have someone who's occupying that space and filling it with racism and ignorance and conspiracy theories and overall just toxic conversation and just toxic ways of thinking, the only thing that offsets that, the only thing that prevents the further indoctrination of not only that person, but of every other white person in the room is another white person sitting there who stands up and says, no, the way this way of thinking is wrong. These are not true. These facts are not true. This is not a correct way of thinking. This is not the best way of thinking. That is the only thing that will prevent white supremacy from further spreading throughout society. White people only listen to other white people, even if they're not racist, even if they're not ignorant. And if they are racist or ignorant, you think they're going to go to a Black Lives Matter rally or take the time to read the 15 infographic slides that you post on your Instagram story every other day? They're not going to put that effort into challenging their own beliefs, especially if their beliefs are as bigoted and as coded in white supremacy as some of the beliefs that we've been seeing spreading and circulating over the past year or so. As a white person, it is unfortunately your responsibility if you want to be a good ally, if you actually want to be the supporter of black people and be the supporter of Black Lives Matter movements and organizations that you want that you say you want to, this is your role. This is what you have to do and this is the job that you have to take on is being the white person in the room who stands up and puts effort into challenging that way of thinking. When you purposefully or intentionally put effort into removing yourselves from situations, I mean, cool, I guess you won't have to deal with that family member's conspiracy theories at the Thanksgiving table. I guess you won't have to deal with your mom or dad's racist rhetoric every single night when you're watching TV. I guess you won't have to see your brother's racist QAnon conspiracy theories on Facebook every day. But you're not helping anyone or doing anything to make spaces safer for black people or non-black people of color in these communities because these people are still going to go out. They're still going to inhabit and they're still going to exist in spaces with black people. And they're still going to hold these opinions whether or not you choose to keep them in your life. But at least you can say if you're staying here and you're putting in the effort to challenge these people's belief, if you're putting in the effort to urge your family or urge people you care about or urge people you know to move away from this way of thinking to move away from these political ideologies, you are truly being the ally that you thought you were being in the first place. To make a long story short, the overarching point of this segment, the overarching objective of what I'm trying to get to and the point I'm trying to make is that you need to put effort into interjecting yourself into spaces of ignorance and make your voice heard because those same spaces are the areas that Black people have no power or voice in. It's that time, it's that unfortunate and unforgiving time during each episode when it comes to an end. But you guys already know the drill, so I'm not going to spend too much time being sad about it. If you enjoyed this week's episode and every other episode before now, please leave a rating and review. You have no idea how much it helps me. Also, be sure to share this podcast with other people you think would enjoy it or it would make an impression on, whether that be friends, people you know, people you work with, your acquaintances, or... How about that racist family that you wanted to cut off, but now that you listen to this week's episode, you know that's not conducive for the anti-racist society that we're looking to build. So instead, you share this podcast with them, and now they're enlightened and a better member of today's society. Boom. There you go. Also, be sure to interact with and follow me on all my social media platforms. All of my handles are at Jalen Tully. 
And most importantly, you guys, always be sure to leave this episode and every episode that comes after ready to educate often, learn freely, and love equally. Take care.